0: Hello, and welcome back to From the Center, the podcast for the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges. I'm the director here at the Center, and we're very glad you're with us. I'm happy to have with me my friend and colleague, Kyle Dillon, uh, to talk to us about a book that we've both been reading lately that I thought might be worth discussing for everybody. It's called Cynical Theories, and it's by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, And it um, is—it's a very interesting book. Another, maybe in the in the list, the increasing list of books by people who are not Christians but are interested in uh, revitalizing or or retaining the uh, the academic world's uh, hold on on reason and uh, and standing against some of these uh, some of these. more, new leftist ideas that seem to be uh, even rejecting reason. So I thought maybe it'd be fun, uh, Kyle, to talk about these together. Welcome to back to our podcast. Thanks for having me again. I'm glad to see you. And the uh, <clears throat> the podcast we did some weeks ago on uh, on the definition of of. Uh, justice right. has been very well received. Uh, a lot of people have told me how much they enjoyed your talk about that. You had several really good points to make there, yep. I thought. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, as as an extension of that, since this is talking about justice or social justice, maybe it'd be good to talk about this book. I've been trying lately, as you know, to to touch on the facets of the social justice movement in our podcasts. We've talked with you about... Uh, about uh, justice, and I talked with uh, Ronnie Stevens about forgiveness, which is a piece of of the puzzle that seems to be missing from a lot of the social justice kind of approach. Um, uh, We talked about the history of social justice with Jack Vowell, uh, uh, the the, uh, extension of Marxism into the 20th century and the Frankfurt School and so on. Uh, We talked with um, uh, Doug Groteis about uh, why it is that this social justice movement seems to be so attractive to evangelicals these days. Uh, and that was a good session, too. And then I talked with Cal Beisner about the idea of rights, about positive about positive and negative rights. So I thought, well, maybe if you I could get you back, we could look at this, this book by Lindsay. I first saw him, I think, in a in a conversation on YouTube. This is James Lindsay I'm talking about, with a Christian guy. Lindsay is an avowed atheist, but uh, it was a, with a, an interview with a Christian guy and a, and with another atheist, the, the two of whom had just created this uh, new, pod, new uh, website called, uh, what do they call it? New Discourses? New Discourses, that's it. New Discourses. Uh, and it was very encouraging, actually, to hear people who are not believers uh, step up to the plate and say... We may not agree with you on your Christianity, but we we can join with you, sort of fighting this new leftism, uh, because it's uh, because it's robbing everybody of the, the what they might have called uh, uh, classical liberalism.
1: Right. Yeah, and and I think that these alliances with non Christians over these critiques of the new left social justice movement are are beneficial for Christians because it can show the world that our ideas are not just rooted in our biblical presuppositions yes but that they are uh, accessible to human reason in general, and so we can make common cause with non Christians for the sake of justice yes. and reason. And so that's why I really do appreciate the work of you know even these these
0: atheists who absolutely don't share our basic worldview commitments. Right, right, right. Um, we were talking last Sunday night about the differences between presuppositional apologetics and classical apologetics. Right, and what you just said seems to lend some credibility to the classical side. Right, I think that it does that people can indeed understand the. Well, two things come to mind. First is that people can, without necessarily uh, accepting uh, uh, the Christian teaching, can still arrive at some reasonable conclusions about what's right and wrong and so on. But, but also that there is a, a sort of cultural effect of, the, of Christianity in the world, even for people who are not believers, Right. you know? And I think both of those are important to remember. Now, I'm hoping that by the end of our discussion here, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, how it is that this classical, maybe enlightenment, even uh, liberalism, Needs to go a little deeper, right. you know, uh, f- for it to be, for it to even stand on its own. But let's, let's see if we can't get to that. I, I think they do a good job of walking through all of the various kinds of of uh, leftist uh, approaches in this book. I want to get to that. But let's let's see what we can get out of his introduction and, and see uh, what the basic premises are of the book. Uh, right off the bat, he, he has, I think, a really good dis- de- definition of uh, what we're calling classical liberalism. Right. He says, the main tenets of liberalism are political democracy, limitations on powers of government, development of human, universal human rights. Legal equality for all adult c- citizens, freedom of expression, respect for the value of viewpoint diversity and honest debate, respect for evidence and reason, and the separation of church and state, freedom and, of religion. I don't disagree with any of those. Do you no, no. have any problems with that? I mean, as a Christian, I don't disagree with any of those. No, I, right? think, I think we could agree with those. Yeah, yeah. the The, uh, the immediate thought is that if they're uh, willing to have uh, respect for the value of viewpoint diversity and uh, and separation of church and state, some Christians might say, "Well, wait a minute. We need to have you know." But 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 I think there's a a, a solid center uh, a theological path that steers away from either liberalism, I mean, theological liberalism on one side, or sort of theonomy on the other, mm, right? right? That allows for us to have, in fact, for, for the church that believes uh, the faith to to want everyone to come to it freely, right? you know, enough so that they're not gonna, they don't wanna use the the law to coerce people uh, into belief, right? Because it's not really belief then. Right, right. I think as, as Christians, we can
1: appreciate these values of classical liberalism, but we we ground them in something deeper. We ground them in something more right. transcendent. And that would be my main critique of this, um, you know, uh, Pluck Rose and Lindsay's um, Position is that uh, there is no transcendent grounding for their ethical right. system. Right, right.
0: It, it seems like the the Enlightenment position would, or this this classical liberalism kind of position, just assumes that those things are true. Right, right. But I think that's where we went wrong back in the eighteen hundreds, eighteenth century, uh, because to to assume that those things are going to continue, like the moral fabric of the country or the of the civilization, right. would continue, and it doesn't. It deteriorates rates when, when it's disconnected from uh, Christian mores. That's right. And I think that's maybe one area where
1: uh, the presuppositionalists highlighted something correct. Correct. Yes. Elias Van Til, the father of presuppositional apologetics, talked about non-Christians using borrowed capital. Yes. Yes. Is that is borrowing truths from the Christian worldview to make sense of reality, but trying to sort of bring that in line with their own worldview commitments, Mm -hmm. which ultimately is not doable. It's not consistent. You know, their worldview foundations can't make sense of these features of reality, so they can't help but borrow truths from the Christian worldview. But as time progresses, there's going to be a greater and greater disconnect between their worldview commitments and these these values that they're holding to. Right. And so they're going to hold to those worldview commitments. Over time, those values will
0: erode. And there's some elements of it that get out of order, th- so that you hold, you you find yourself in conflict between the ideological thing you're holding to, and the the value system that you've assumed is always going to continue. So, for example, uh, you, you might come to the point where you think, uh, I believe in individual rights or individualism, right? And and so eventually, when someone says, "Well, I'm an individual because I'm a," You know, child molester or something, and and you say, well, I don't really approve of child molesting, but I'm in favor of individualism, and so maybe I have to compromise on on my child molesting stance. You see what I mean? Because right. there's really nothing there to hold you to it except your revulsion, right? You know, your personal revulsion uh, to to the to the sin. Um, could we, could we give a definition from Pluckrose and, and Lindsay uh, of what critical theory is? What sure. do you think? Can we get now,
1: in? Uh, yeah. To sort of set up their thesis, um, what they're trying to do is give a genealogy of the modern social justice movement, uh-huh. which, which perhaps to distinguish it from other definitions of social justice, we could call it critical social justice. Um, and they see this as the latest iteration of postmodern theory. Okay. And so really what's going on here within critical social justice is a synthesis of two movements. Um, there is on the one hand, uh, postmodern theory, which came from particular French philosophers in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And that's where they, they start their book. After the introduction, they go into the, the thought of these particular French thinkers. But the other route of, The critical social justice movement is uh, critical theory or, um, uh, as it's historically known, the Frankfurt School, which which came out of Germany in the 1930s with the Institute for Social Research. That's right. Individuals like Max Horkheimer Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, then later on Herbert Marcuse and Jürgen Habermas and folks like that. That's right. They don't spend as much time in this book talking about the Frankfurt School. They give it a footnote. Um, but most of their attention in this book is on the roots of critical social justice within postmodern theory, or as they refer
0: to it in the book, theory, with a capital just T. Theory. Exactly. That's how it's being treated now, just as theory in, right. the, in academia. Well, that's actually maybe an interesting point to make here, too, because we were just talking about it before we started, that uh, one of the things that... Uh, uh, Jordan Peterson seems to harp on is that this modern leftism is a combination of postmodern theory and cultural Marxism, right. from the Frankfurt School, and so. But but the funny thing about postmodernism as a as a as a pure if it is a pure uh, thought from Derrida from uh, Foucault is that there's a and Lyotard too for that matter. Uh, there's a. a, a uh, a, a hesitancy about meta narratives, right? A disbelief, right. Uh, kind of cynicism about meta narratives, and in that list of meta narratives, they would include Marxism. Yes, right. It would so they would they would be against Christianity as a meta narrative or Judeo Christianity, but they'd also be against Marxism. But strangely enough and in our book here, I think they're showing it, right. uh, is that there's a connection somehow between the two. Modern. That's right. Absolutely.
1: So what we see um, it, it, with the development of postmodern theory over the decades is, as the authors describe it, it's gone through three main stages. Okay. Stage one was the original French philosophers. Uh, so that's Jacques Derrida, Jean-Francois Lyotard, and Michel Foucault. Right. Uh, and during that phase, the emphasis was on deconstructing, Yes, it was radical skepticism, right? Um, a suspicion towards any meta narratives, right? And um, in their writings, there was a bit of playfulness, a bit of irony, mm-hmm. and also a note of despair, because they were really focused on tearing things down without building anything up in their uh-huh. place. There was no uh-huh. sense of hope there or an end goal.
0: Some of that I see now in the modern in modern day uh, 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 academia, where people are saying that they're post-postmodernist right. to a degree because of that very thing, that they can't just not build anything. Right, they can't just tear things down. You run out of things to tear down eventually. Right. There was what are the, you um, going to put in its place kind of thing?
1: There's a quote I came across by um, a British literary critic named uh, Frank Kermode. And he says, Deconstructors write no Gospels. Right. That's a good summary of the thought of stage one postmodernism. Right. Which is uh, what uh, Pluckers and and Lindsay refer to as the high deconstructive phase, Uh where it was all about tearing down. It was radical skepticism. um, And that was not really sustainable in that form they they, almo- they liken postmodernism to a virus mm-hmm. in, in that it, in its first stage it's it's so esoteric that it can't leap from host to host because oh, it, it, yeah. it really um, it, it's not um, infectious on a popular level because the ideas are so esoteric it doesn't really tap into our deepest human longings for um, redemption uh-huh. There is no redemption in in high deconstructive postmodernism that
0: starts to change in the next stage and especially in the latest stage and there was a lot of euphoria, I remember. At the end of the 60s, early part of the 70s in academia, there was uh, kind of a, a, a shock of the new kind of delight, you know, at this new way of looking at things and gave everybody, just like I think the Enlightenment originally gave, a kind of optimism about how, oh, good, this is going to explain everything. This is going to give us a new idea. But eventually, it, it, seemed, it turns on itself. It, right. it, it, can't, it, it can only deconstruct. It can't construct. Right, exactly. And so
1: what ended up happening was, uh, sort of against its own uh, foundational principles, mm-hmm. it turned into something that could be actionable, something that did emphasize um, truth. Uh, and so there there was sort of an application of postmodern thought within a new context. And this is in stage two, where we get into all the different sub Fields of postmodern thinking, um, which they call applied postmodernism. Right. This would include things like um, postcolonial studies, queer studies, feminism, which is now known as gender studies, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and and, and related fields, fat studies, disability studies, and so Mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. Um, They do a good job of kind of unpacking all those, don't they? Right. And and the bulk of the book is is analyzing each of these subfields of applied postmodernism. Right. And so if the emphasis... Of stage one postmodernism is on skepticism. Mm-hmm. The emphasis in stage two is on activism. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. actually doing something with these ideas um, and really picking up on the themes of power and language from the original French philosophers. Yes. And and exposing systems of oppression um, within these various subfields. Excellent. And making those uh, making those things actionable. In the name of social justice, which brings us to the third stage where, you know, if the emphasis on stage one is skepticism, stage two is activism, stage three is certainty, Uh which is almost the opposite of what the original French postmodern thinkers were after. They would have said certainty is impossible. Right. And yet, um, in stage three postmodernism, which really begins in. around the year 2010. And they refer to it as reified Mm postmodernism because they're taking the categories of theory and and making them into sacred principles of truth. They are axiomatic, uncontestable. And based on these notions of of oppression and the way language works, and we can unpack some of those postmodern themes that run through every stage, um, what they do is they take those for granted. And then they build upon those a vision of a just society. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But ironically, there is no end game there. Oh, okay, yeah. It's constant exposing of oppression without ever arriving at a state of justice, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. because the job is never done. And that's sort of where that's an idea that they that they've gotten from the, the Frankfurt School. From the Marxists. Exactly. The Marxists. You know, yeah. your job is never done. Yep. Critical theory is all about breaking what is. So that's an expression that James Lindsay used in a, in a recent interview. Um, um, Breaking, that I, what is. Yeah. Breaking what is. Breaking what is. So it's always about exposing oppression within whatever the status quo happens to be. And that's a moving
0: target, right? Because the status quo will change right. from generation to generation. Right, right. I think we've seen that in the last 20, 30 years where... For a while, maybe uh, homosexual practice was considered uh, sinful behavior by many, by most uh, an aberrant social behavior, and then it becomes a little more acceptable, and then they move the target to transgenderism or right. something else, you know, and constantly moving it their way down the down the list. Uh, what's interesting to me about what you just said in the third stage is that it sounds very much like a, a meta-narrative. Absolutely. In fact, they say that in the book. Book too. Um, and so
1: that's why, you know, of the original postmodern thinkers, it was Jean-Francois Lyotard who, who emphasized this idea of suspicion towards metanarratives. Right. And as I'm reading through this book, Lyotard doesn't seem to come back as much in stage <laughs> two and three. They really like to use Foucault and they like to use Derrida as well, but Lyotard not as much because there is a sense in which the, they they
0: have adopted their own metanarrative. mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is why a lot of this starts to feel a little bit like a religion. That's in right. In the sense of, of mankind, man-made religion. I don't mean... To, I, in that sense, I think... I mean, that, that, in that sense of the word religion, Christianity isn't a religion, in That's a right. sense. You see what I mean? Because I think it's a man-made way to try and establish virtue or to uh, account for sin in the world or something like that. Right. And uh, that, of course, never works. And I think that sort of highlights
1: sort of the, uh, the the sociological advantage of stage three postmodernism, reified postmodernism over its original stage. It really tapped into that human longing for redemption. There you go. Right. Right. So I think, you know, these calls for social justice, they're so appealing because th- they do tap into a deep human longing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, whereas those original French thinkers, you know, they were kind of detached in the academy and didn't get much traction in, in the popular consciousness. Well, one
0: of the things that they were so fascinated with, in particular Derrida, uh, but I guess Foucault as well, was uh, the the place of language. Oh, yes. Uh, and how it is that language works and how we define terms. And eventually they start calling themselves anti-logocentric. Yes. You heard that line? Yep. That work. And I think, you know, as a as a follower of the Logos, <laughs> to be anti Logocentric is a very interesting position to take in my mind because uh, it, it becomes not just a, a disagreement about theories, it actually becomes an anti Christian thing. Specifically, Andy, I don't mean to say, I'm not trying to create a, uh, 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 what do you call it, a conspiracy theory here. This is simply the idea that words have meanings that are somehow outside of the usage that we make of them. You know, that there is such a thing as a logos that gives meaning to words like love. For right. example, uh, we can't just redefine love any way we want to. it has to act, has to uh, connect up with reality somehow, exactly like heterosexuality they make make a mention in here of heterosexuality actually is is uh, connected to the, our biological reproduction, and so it's hard to uh, see that as something that's completely socially constructed right yeah.
1: and so that that ties into um, postmodern theory's rejection of the traditional correspondence theory of truth. Right, right. Where it was thought that, that words actually correspond to something real. Whereas within especially within the thinking of Derrida
0: language is just a social construct that's right that's right and words are always defined by other words right so there's a kind of circularity to language exactly you know, external reference point uh, to language yeah that's right and I think well that's exactly the opposite of what we think as Christians it's not just another idea it's uh, that the that the word himself I should say uh, is is the thing that created the world to begin with it was God spoke the word, and that word was uh, the Son. You know, he, the, the Trinity actually gives account of uh, a creation. And that means that there are definitely connections uh, from the eternalness of God to the very individual words that we use in language, uh, communicate in language now. But what's interesting about that is in this, I think, is that even the Derrida's of the world Recognize the power of language—that it's through right. language that all things actually get made and understood, and communities are built, and you know, art is accomplished, and and uh, uh, civilization stands. Right. And, and
1: as Pluckrose and Lindsay define what it, what is it that that makes postmodernism what it is? They they highlight, you know, two principles and three, uh, four themes of postmodernism and and one of these themes is the power of language maybe would it be helpful for me to go through these touch that okay so uh what ties together these three stages of postmodernism so you have the high deconstructive phase the applied phase and then the reified phase what they all have in common are the two principles of of knowledge the knowledge principle and the political principle right the knowledge principle is a radical skepticism regarding whether objective truth Um, or knowledge is obtainable. Is even possible. Is even possible for us. And then the political principle is the belief that society is formed of systems of power and hierarchies which decide what can be known and how. Mm -hmm. And so we see these principles uh, played out within the, the four themes of postmodernism, which would be the blurring of boundaries, mm-hmm. the power of language, as you were talking about, mm-hmm. cultural relativism. And then this one's especially um, relevant within our age of identity politics. It's the loss of the individual yes. and the universal.
0: Yes. And so that, so it pushes toward globalism. Right. Yes. Right. That's very true. Yeah, that's right. The Enlightenment really emphasized the individual to, at the expense, maybe, of the community. Uh, but the, but here now we're talking about getting rid of the the individual and the community, or at least the um, the. Um, how did they put it? the second they say one? The individual and the universal. Universal. Oh,
1: right. Yeah. In, in the sense that you know, think of like the 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 basic human rights of classical liberalism. Yeah. Right. The, the those are those laws are. Those principles are colorblind, right? But what we found is sort of the egalitarian spirit of modernity, which is also open to critique in itself, has been replaced by a fragmentation into tribalism, Uh ideological tribalism, where you are now, you're not defined by your own individuality or by whether it's the image of God or, you know, being homo sapiens endowed with certain rights, rationally speaking, according to the modernist, but now you are you're white or black, you are male, female, you are uh, straight or gay or queer or trans or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, you you are all these different categories or representative of these. Right. But your sense of self exists only in so far as you represent these categories. I see. But not even that, it's these categories as interpreted by theory so they don't even allow for viewpoint diversity within these
0: categories. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, because they would ignore anybody that was a a, a black man that's a conservative for example would be ignored or right. dismissed. Yeah, well, so I see what you're saying that that it's universal universal in the sense that it's referring to all of human beings. Yes. Right. So the individual gets lost because he has to be identified as part of the tribe. Right. But the universal humanity gets lost as well because you have to think smaller than that. You're, you're only a member of your tribe. Right. Your ideological right. tribe. Because the whole, the whole theory rests on
1: exposing systems of power and oppression. And so right. that highlights the differences between people. So the notion of a common humanity is lost. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. One thing that um, the Frankfurt School highlighted, which is we also see in um, uh, modern critical social justice activism, is the rejection of the fact-value split. Right. That was something from the Enlightenment as well. And, and I think they're onto something there. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. We, we can't entirely separate fact from value. And in the classical tradition, they recognize that. That's why, you know, you think of um, how... Um, was it Francis Bacon in his study of science? He says we need to look at material causes and efficient causes only, but reject formal and final causes. Uh uh-huh. uh-huh. um, But it's that no realms of metaphysics. Exactly, because that's metaphysics, not yeah. science. But I, I think Aristotle was right there in holding on to those formal and final causes, the notion of teleology. Mm-hmm. You can't really understand a thing unless you know what it's for. Exactly, exactly. Implies a value judgment, right? So I, I think that um, although critical social justice activists are correct to highlight the the fallacy of the fact value split, what they're putting in its place is is not the solution.
0: Yeah, yeah, good point. Going back to your four uh, tenets, there, uh, it, they talk about how the self is socially constructed. Right. They talk about how morality is constructed. All all these things are, are come from the from the. The community and not from some external point of view. Uh, they even talk about uh, deconstructing art, uh, you know, that art is, um, and it's kind of understandable the rejection of any kind of art. If art is ultimately speaking of transcendent things th- and there's nothing that's transcendent, then art needs to be brought down a peg too. And, right. and you start seeing the, the uh, sort of blurring of the lines between high art and pop culture, you know, the Andy Warhol kind of uh, world, you know, where uh, those two things sort of blur together. And then finally, this idea of all these barriers have to come down, the barriers between, uh, um, uh, well, actually, they're constructing barriers to (laughs) uh, to create tribes, but they're ignoring individualism and they're ignoring universalism. And it leads to a kind of globalization that is a, is a, it's a globalization of tribal life, yes. ideological tribal life, right? And it, but it's still trying to get a, a one mindset. It seems to me across to all the tribes. That's right. Don't you think? That's right. There, there coercion is coercion involved here. So there's ahead. an
1: inherent inconsistency in yes. thinking of theory here because they they talk about cultural relativism but they take some of their you know foundational principles as sacred truth yes right. Right. this right. idea that right. society consists of um, uh, systems of power and oppression that we have all bought into even if unconsciously mm-hmm. that is an uncontestable axiomatic truth for them. Right. It's not open to critique. Right, right. Um, and, and that does not fit well with this emphasis on cultural
0: relativism. Yeah, yeah. So Relativism for thee and not for me exactly. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, right. But here's another interesting thing, talking about that sort of hypocrisy, because that's what that is, right, to claim one thing and then to do another, uh, to do the opposite yourself, uh, is, is that hypocrisy itself gets rejected as a concept. I don't think... One of the complaints I have about the political right these days is that nearly everything I hear them say is pointing the finger at the left and saying, you guys are hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true. I think they are being hypocritical in some of the ways we just mentioned. But I don't think it matters to them. Yeah. See, so I feel like we're, we're barking up on the right, on the right, we're barking up the wrong tree to simply point out hypocrisy to people who no longer have, their ideology is so, so deeply entrenched that it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to them if they are hypocritical on a particular issue. It, if it accomplishes the end of their, of their ideology, then it's okay. You know, yeah. that's right, because if, if you if you
1: try to expose where their thinking is inconsistent or unreasonable, they'll just say you're using the tools of reason that were developed by the, the white by the Western white patriarchy. Professors. Exactly. And so they're assuming the truth of their principles to critique any critiques of their view of the truth. <laughs>
0: right. Right. So there's a lot of contradiction going on if they only read Aristotle.
1: <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
0: Well, I, there was a point though I wanted to bring up about the, the fourth of those, or no? Hang on, you, of your first two principles, the second one was about political. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, the, what was the word they the used? Political principle. Okay, political principle. The, the, the second one, the, the second one, the political principle says something about how politics or the political power uh, will establish the truth and how it's known. That's right. That's an interesting thought to me. Yeah does it sound like like it it's be a, a a defense against a defense for uh, uh, censorship and canceling, and yeah,
1: kind of thing that is going on now. And that's an idea that they've synthesized from the Frankfurt School. Yes. So um, uh, there was an, uh, a guy associated with the Frankfurt School who wasn't in the Frankfurt School. His name was Antonio Gramsci. Right, the Italian. And, right, and he was you know within the Italian Communist Party, imprisoned by Mussolini, wrote several thousand pages of, of writings in prison, um, and an idea he had developed was this notion of cultural hegemony. Mm-hmm. The idea that, um, uh, so whereas like, you know, Karl Marx, and he was a Marxist, you know, Gramsci was, um, w- Karl Marx was focusing on the sort of the, the, the oppression in its economic base. Right,
0: right. Between well, economic classes Right. right
1: But what Gramsci was trying to expose was sort of the political and cultural superstructure of oppression, where what we see is even the, the proletariats have adopted bourgeois values, without even realizing it Uh Um, because of the way social institutions work, the way power is embedded within everything. And um, then that um, is then picked up by Herbert Marcuse later on in the Frankfurt School with his notion of repressive tolerance. And Mm. he wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance, where he Um, He talks about um, sort of the problem with uh, unrestrained tolerance, where if we're going to give unrestrained tolerance to everyone, that's going to allow. At the time, he was pointing to the concerns of like fascism, for Mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the way that was applied by the new left uh, was that really we we can't extend tolerance to anyone to our right. Yes. And so and, and, and so that idea is has very much been picked up, you know, by the modern critical
0: social justice um, activists. yeah. Well, I think it is important to see the two of them as connected, uh, even where they're disagreeing with each other. Uh, on page seventy six, I thought he had a good uh, description or summary of the modern and postmodern kind of mindset there. And I wanted to ask you your opinion about that. You see how he says, a Western colonial mindset says Westerners are rational and scientific, while Asians are irrational and superstitious. Therefore, Europeans must rule Asia for its own good. Right. Um, I've I got a lot of problems with that. Yes. Partly because I think that's not a very good picture, but maybe maybe some people at some time in the West have held that kind of view. But anyway, let's hold that for a second. Then he says, a liberal mindset, of course that's the mindset of the authors here, uh, all humans have the capacity to be rational and scientific, but individuals will vary widely. Therefore, all humans must have all opportunities and freedoms. That sounds more like uh, kind of the American mindset sure. in its founding and so on. But then he says, the postmodern mind says, the West has constructed the idea that rationality and science are good in order to perpetuate its own power and marginalize non-rational, non-scientific forms of knowledge production from elsewhere. It's kind of the point you were just saying, that if you call on statistics or reason or something like that, they simply reject that as a quite Eurocentric way of thinking and, uh, and dismiss any conclusions that come from it. Right, and that, this
1: anti-scientific bent, we, we see it highlighted more in some subfields of applied postmodernism than others. For example, it's, it's really emphasized in queer theory, which really is suspicious of any claims of scientific foundations for biological differences between uh-huh. male and
0: female, for example. Uh-huh. They have a lot of, I think there are a lot of problems there. Uh, I don't mean mo- morally speaking. There's that too, but I mean in their thinking. Uh, but we can get into that if you like. But anyway, this this three-part definition here I thought was a fairly good summary of the way the authors see these ways of thinking. Yes. And what I was hoping for is maybe we could unpack this a little bit and and correct their vision of what. Um, what maybe a pre-liberal, a pre-enlightenment mind might say. Sure. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to categorize the Western mindset this way if I don't have to. Can you right. help me out? Yeah,
1: I think there are a number of ways where um, we can critique uh, the the alternative solution that these authors are proposing, and we can make those critiques from a pre-liberal classical standpoint. That it that, that is not itself subject to these sorts of, you know, racist criticisms. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I do recognize that, that there were some people in the oh, pre-liberal yeah. tradition who held these views, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, especially, you know, with the rise of European colonialism in like the 15th century and onward. Um, you do see that mindset sometimes, mm-hmm. but um, I think there is a, a better way to critique those views from within the system of, the pre-liberal tradition, itself. right? Right, I, I agree. Think of how, um, you know, what C.S. Lewis has to say in *The Abolition of Man*, where he he says that the the Tao can be critiqued from within, yes, but not from without, right? Because if you try to critique the Tao from without, that's basically a revolt of the branches against the tree. You're going to yeah. cut off the, you know, the 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 trunk that you're that you're standing on. And the the
0: the foundation you want to have to be able to do the critique comes from the Tao itself. That's right. <clears throat> so you. Can't, you can't dismiss the Tao and then critique the Tao. Right. But what I'm thinking is that there's, you know, uh, well, let me go to the second one and see all humans have the capacity to be rational and scientific. Individuals were very, very okay, they're willing to say that all humans have this capacity. I think the liberal mindset gets that from Christianity. Yeah. You see, yeah. because we're the ones that say man is made in the image of God. All mankind is made right. in the image of God. And the ability to make sense of things is a gift from God. And so we should, we should want. The, uh, therefore, all humans must have all opportunities and freedoms. Without admitting that it comes from the faith, they're describing something that came from the faith. Whereas that Approach that does come from the faith would be the critique. It seems for the Western colonial mind that says we are have it all together, and you guys are just morons. That's right. You know. Well, no, that's that goes again. So, if if you look at this and call the Western colonial mindset the Christian mindset, I think you misunderstand. So, I, that's one of the critiques I would give of of the book that sure. they yeah. that they shortchange two things. First of all, what they claim Christianity and and the West teaches, uh, even though it's been abused in many, many ways. But the second thing is that they don't acknowledge the foundation of their own sort of classical liberalism that comes from Christianity. Right. And I think that's one of my critiques of the
1: book is, you know, when they're talking about um, uh, the, the, the injustices that modern social justice activists are trying to highlight, they say the liberal tradition was working, Right. Look at like the civil rights movement. And we we, we have laws that have established racial equality. Right. So the solution was already working within liberalism. I wish they had applied that idea to the pre-liberal tradition as well. Exactly. Same. The pre-liberal tradition has within itself the resources to correct these injustices, too. And we can see that. Like, think of how, you know, um, think of William Wilberforce. Oh, yeah. He was a Christian. He wasn't using Enlightenment liberal principles to counteract this British slave trade. He was using his Christian faith. Right. And so I think we can say that just as the authors here want to claim that liberalism has within itself the resources to correct injustice, I think we can say the same about the pre-liberal tradition. Right,
0: right, right. And it turns out that all human beings are flawed. And yes. so Christians and non-Christians have always done things that are not right. And so to... Sometimes I think that the real problem with, between the left and the right today is that the left takes the reality of whatever it's critiquing capitalism or or heterosexual or orthodoxy or whatever and looks at it and sees the flaws and compares those flaws that genuinely are there with the the uh, the imagined utopian kind of vision that they have for their approach to things right so they end up uh, comparing apples and oranges basically you know right. if they would compare the actual practice of Christians throughout the ages with the actual practice of leftism, communism and socialism and and some of these other rousseauian kind of based uh, ideologies uh that would be at least a fair comparison you see and but on the or on the other hand compare what what the, the, the Christian faith has taught all these years with the idealized sort of uh, Marxist, you know, utopian vision, then I think it would be a fair... Con- but it's never done that way, you see. It's always comparing. Look how awful those things are, go- are going on. And it's, it's because of capitalism. It's because of Christianity. It's because of all these things that this is happening, right? But, on, but if you follow us, <laughs> we won't have any of those things. And I think, well, come on. That's not, that's not really quite fair. There's another uh, point I wanted to bring up that I think is a slight uh, problem in their theory. Uh, on page, um, this is in the homosexual chapter. Mm, yes. Um, on page 110. He says um, the idea that heterosexuality is a social construct completely neglects the reality that humans are a sexual, sexually reproducing species. Right. In other words, their theory and the practice don't jive, Right, but. Throughout throughout the chapter, um, th- the idea is that uh, that by our our, dis- our sexual preferences are not designed biologically. Our sexual preferences are constructions, social social constructions, mm-hmm. right? I, I found I found the authors more sympathetic to the homosexual practice chapter than they were even with feminism or right. And in that particular one, they seem to want to say. Uh, We've grown up. We've 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 arrived at a much more mature position where we say that it's foolish to think that sexual preferences and so on are uh, are uh, innate. Right. Uh, And uh, so nobody. In fact, I think that's the quote I was thinking about. Nobody uh, refers to masculinity and femininity as, uh, uh, you know, as uh, uh, inherent right any longer i can't find the right place for it but it that's that's what it says but then by the end of the chapter they have to admit that heterosexuality the idea that it's a social construct really neglects the reality right which is that's how babies are born i mean you can't get around the plumbing you know right so (laughs) And, and i think this is where i found
1: myself um Furthest removed from their alternative proposal of, oh, of all of oh. the uh, examinations of the sub-disciplines of applied postmodernism, this is what, what I think really highlights um, the difference between a pre-liberal understanding of gender and sexuality and a liberal understanding of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. The authors, Pluck, Rose, and Lindsay, are understanding gender and sex primarily in terms of a private activity between consenting adults. Right. And I don't think that's enough. I think if we go back further into the pre-liberal tradition, we recognize that sex is a a sacred activity that is about bringing life into the world. It is fundamentally procreative. And that is what provides the norms of sex. It's not merely
0: whatever adults consent to. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's right, and that and that has ramifications for the definition of family, that's right. How we raise our children and what a community looks like. I remember reading um, Wendell Berry saying that the that the difference between the state and the community is that for the community, the smallest unit uh, within the community is the family. Right. Whereas for the state, the smallest unit in the state is the individual. Yeah, that's right. You know, so. They can get along fairly well as long as the state, in a sense, stays out of the community. Let the community define its own sort of... So there's an argument, really an argument that, that uh, Pluckrose and, and uh, Lindsay would agree to, I think, given their understanding of classical liberalism. But they, they would say uh, the government should stay out of that. Well, here's the problem. if When the government decides what marriage is, mm-hmm. then on one hand, if, they, if it's going to follow the state's appreciation of the individual as the, as the smallest unit, then uh, it wants uh, no-fault divorce, for example, right. and an e- make it as easy as possible for everybody to break up their family in order to preserve the happiness of the individual, right? the, the rights of the individual. Whereas if the community defines marriage, then it says it is it is uh, healthy families are so vital for a healthy community mm-hmm. that we want to make laws really that say uh, let's make divorce as hard as possible. You mm-hmm. see, that's right. Let's make It's not impossible to get a divorce, but you've got to prove, you know, infidelity or right. some sort of thing. Right. The It used to be people had to go to court to get a divorce. Nowadays, yeah. you almost don't. So. Uh, that's the conflict, you know, the, I, the individual versus the family. And yeah. so if the sexual understanding, if, if our sexuality is defined purely as consensual physical activity with no spiritual aspect, no procreative aspect, then the, what you've got really is, uh, well, talking about the abolition of man. I mean, we've got a world full of uh, people, uh, slaves to their appetites then, that's right. right? That's kind of what we're looking at. I think you
1: know, and, and this topic might deserve a whole podcast episode of its own. But the role of harm within a system of justice—if—if mm-hmm. um, if, if there's one thing I would criticize within the liberal tradition, it's—it's—it's it's, it's the way it understands the notion of of harm as a limiting principle within a. A, a political system or a system of justice. H- how do you this mean, goes, harm? This goes all the way back to John Stuart Mill, yes, one of the fathers of utilitarianism. Yes. And, you know, within utilitarianism, the idea is what is good is that which maximizes the happiness and well-being of the greatest number. Of the, of the greatest people. number, right. Well, Mill wrote a book on liberty where he distinguishes between self-regarding immoralities and other-regarding immoralities. Hmm. And he basically made the case, which has been adopted by modern liberals as well, going all the way up to... Um, you know, John Rawls is one of the leading philosophers of liberalism, um, you know, in, in the 20th century. But the idea there is the state can impose laws if you're harming someone else, <laughs> But if it's only regarding yourself, you have total freedom. Mm -hmm. And so that really puts us in a quandary when we're addressing ethical questions or um, legislative questions regarding prostitution or pornography, drug use, um, gay marriage, for example. Because allegedly, these are victimless crimes. Right, right, right. right. Um, but we've defined harm in such a way that that I don't think is actually consistent. Mm. Because on the one hand, we can't say that, how do we define harm? It's not just causing someone else physical pain, even like a liberal would acknowledge that, because, you know, a pickpocket may not be causing pain, but there is a sense in which he is wronging you. Right. At the same time, though, think about the harms caused by the liberal understanding of sex, as activities mm-hmm. between consenting adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind of harm does that cause to children? Mm. What kind of harm does divorce cause to
0: children? Right,
1: right. And and, and, and the psychological harm of sexual autonomy is not considered. Right. And so I I think that highlights one of the shortcomings within the liberal conception of of harm within a system
0: of justice. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it kind of leaves a a bubble of of, uh, interaction around the word libertarianism, doesn't it? Yes. Libertarians would argue, uh against any kind of drug laws for example or in favor of gay marriage or at least saying that the government shouldn't shouldn't be involved and right. should regulate it yeah so but it, but that question of harm is really a good one if we deny the fact that we are also spiritual beings though um that definition of harm it gets muddy, doesn't it? That's right. You know, because there is such a thing as, we are spiritual beings and that really does have an effect on uh, us if we use drugs or uh, illicit sex or some of these other things that are supposedly uh, uh, victimless crimes, right? It's a hard argument to make unless you can call people back to the scriptures or a moral foundation. Uh, And in a plurality, uh, like ours, it's, uh, it's, that's not a common foundation any longer, is it? Right. Uh, and all the more so in the next generations, I think. So uh, that's a hard one to do. I think Bill Buckley had a problem with that, too. He, he eventually came, kind of became libertarian about drug abuse, for mm-hmm. example, he, drug laws. Uh, he said, well, let's just not have any, you know, let make heroin legal. And uh, if people decide to use it, well, then they suffer the consequences. Um, but it was it was in a I mean, he himself would have been against it as a Christian, mm-hmm. but he but he knew that in a plurality, uh, you have to make some kind of allowances. This sort of goes back to the point we were making at the beginning that uh, that even Christians want there to be a freedom to choose in the world, you know, right. of, in favor. If you're not choose, if you're forced to choose the good have you really done anything virtuous? Right. You see? Right. <laughs> There's a book that really helped me think
1: through these issues. Um, oh, good. What? Uh, it's called Making Men Moral by Robert George. Oh. Um, where he, he makes a case for, um, the, it's a political system known as perfectionism, which is an unfortunate term because of, you know, the way we use the term perfectionism today. It's like, you know, neurotic overachievement. Right. right. But it, within the classical tradition, perfectionism was simply to say the civil government has an interest in the moral well-being of its citizens. hmm Mm-hmm. And um, so George proceeds to make the case that you can actually argue for morals legislation that is not necessarily rooted on religious revelation, but on reason. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Uh, because of the, the, the qualities that make us uniquely human. So um, think of how you know recreational drug use degrades our humanity. It robs us of reason. And those are things that are necessary for a flourishing
0: society. Right. So right. Yeah, that's a good point. I like having that area, again, where we can, we can, we can reason together with people who don't uh, accept our foundational principles. Not because I want to leave it there, but because I want to start it there. Right. Because you know? there really is an effect of the Christian faith uh, on reason. Yes, and reason then has can see uh, the realities of the world and take those natures into consideration and and act in accordance with those natures, uh, and it looks looks much more like wisdom to me than right. than not because there are consequences for the things that we do. Right, and I think it makes us
1: more hopeful about the possibility of achieving justice in society. Yes, because otherwise you'd basically be saying we can't achieve. Justice until we convert everyone to Christianity. Right, right. And we have no control over that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Exactly. You know, we can share the gospel, but ultimately who comes to Christ is up to the Holy Spirit. However, if we're making good arguments that speak to people's
0: innate reason, yeah.
1: that might get us some traction.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it makes makes for a better society. And it even actually has a kind of evangelistic aspect because when you do find a, somebody who's willing to say, you know, huh, that makes sense. I guess I better change my mind about that. The next step may be to connect that idea back up like we're doing with their classical liberalism to the foundations that make that classical liberalism possible. I think I was talking to you, uh, maybe, uh, maybe it was another podcast, but uh, about uh, Tom Holland's book, uh, Dominion, and how he argues that, uh, this, this, even the leftists of our day that are interested in looking after, genuinely interested in looking after uh, the poor or the the oppressed or the underprivileged or, or whatever the the the, the unimportant supposed people in the world. Um, do so because they've been so influenced by Christianity. Right. Even though they themselves would claim that they are dismissing Christianity altogether and looking for a far better world, <laughs> you can't think that that's going to be a far better world unless you start thinking in Christian categories. Because yeah, because right. the Greeks didn't think that way. You know, the, the Greeks didn't uphold the poverty stricken and the poor and mm-hmm. the slave and so on. the the uh, the uh, the Romans certainly didn't. They they, they a power is what, what was that they were after and so on. But but once but once there was a crucifixion, see, mm-hmm. and now that crucifixion actually in, it put, puts an imprint on everybody's hearts. I think to a degree, even if you're not a believer, you still sort of think like that was that was bad. That was a bad thing to do. And they were treating him as if he were a nobody. And maybe people really aren't nobodies. Maybe everybody has some dignity to them. You know. Well. What do you think? Can we go to the end of the book a little and see what he says, what they say about uh, uh, solutions? How do they go about offering uh, ways out of this dilemma? Most of the book, nine-tenths of the book, uh, is describing the problem at the very end, like most of us, uh, find the solutions more difficult. But they do give us a few things. I'm thinking about 262 here, uh, where... um, they say a brief discussion of solutions and they mentioned um they, they, they kind of show you what they think wouldn't be solutions first. They, mm-hmm. to, they say, uh, to say for example, reverse uh, censorship would not be a good idea. Right. It may be that we're being censored right now by the left, uh, and that's a bad thing. But for us to gain power and then turn the tables on them and do it back to them would be simply doing the same thing, and that's no good. And I think that argument can extend to... Uh, uh, you know the quota systems and things like that the racism has been so awful we need to turn it around and treat white people like we, you white people have been treating black people or something that's right you know and that's kind of the thesis of
1: uh, Ibram X Kendi's book how to be an anti racist that the the solution to past discrimination is
0: is more discrimination He's new discrimination in the, in, re, in the other direction right as though somehow there's a balance to be accomplished here right. but we used to say my mother used to teach me two wrongs don't make a right yeah you know and i i've always believed that so, So I guess I don't see. But anyway, they're arguing the same thing, it seems to me, in this first paragraph. That's right. Um, They also don't like the idea of governmental um, involvement, that is to to write the stage by using the power of the law. Uh, which I think is a good thing too, right? That, yep. That's not going to work either. You don't want to use the law again for the same reasons that the Christians don't want to make people Christian by way of the law. Right. Like they can't really. Yeah. It's not possible. But some people argue that the downfall of the Roman Empire was precisely because they became the Holy Roman Empire and everybody had to be baptized. Uh-huh. If they were going to be a Roman citizen, you had to be baptized. right? So that makes... You know, if my choices are be baptized or be killed, let me think about it. Okay, (laughs) you know, Uh, but then what they offer instead is something they call secularism on page 263. Yes. In liberal societies, we've already had the answer to the problem, how to deal with reified philosophical systems. The third third uh, uh, segment that you were talking about that threaten to impose themselves on society and this answer is called secularism he says secularism is best known as a legal principle the separation of church and state but this principle is based on a more profound philosophical idea that no matter how certain you may be that you are in a possession of the truth you have no right to impose your belief on society as a whole what do you think so, I mean, yes, he's basically
1: making a case for free speech here, right? And um, I mean, I, I would say yes, that is a that is a good that we should value. I think as Christians, we would sort of ground that differently. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, we we would say that it's not that false speech has value in itself, but it is that um, in order to protect the truth, you need to protect the the, the freedom, the legal freedom, right, to speak truth because. Recognizing human depravity, you know, what if you know laws against speech were were in the hands of the wrong people? Right. That's going to lead to censorship and oppression in the wrong direction. Yeah. And so, to to protect against that, yes, we we should have um, a freedom of speech, legally speaking.
0: Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, and we would agree with that. Um, I guess I just don't like the word secularism yeah. b- as a t- as a title for it, I, it because it seems like it, it excludes it takes that it does that same thing that enlightenment always has done you know all the way back to Kant and and even Rousseau and Voltaire where reason becomes rationalism yes. so it establishes a world of rationalism that no longer needs to be grounded in anything spiritual so. My argument is that you can't reason unless you ground it in spiritual truth. Right. You see, I don't think reason is a it's not a separate thing from the rest of us. God has given us reason and the re, the, the reason that I can trust my reason is because I trust the God who gave me a knowable world and a mind that can grasp something of that world. You right. see, and if I didn't have that, if I thought that ultimately either my mind was simply my own, not attached to anything else, and the world around me may not give me any kind of cohesive answers in my experiments, then I wouldn't bother to reason anymore, you know? So I think there has to be a deeper position for reasoning, a deeper foundation for reasoning. Right. So secularism sounds to me, maybe it's just because Christians use that word to mean non-Christian. And I'm not sure that's what it means. Actually, secularized right. means just like the rest of life. But what I want to reestablish, I would want to reestablish, is that taking the Christian faith leads to the very things that they're talking about. So it doesn't. It's not. It's not sort of cordoned off, divided off from uh, the public square or the, right. the the rest of life. You know, the, that it lays the foundations for. Good understanding of free speech, or understanding of freedom of uh, the press, or any of these other things that we want to apply. Right. What's that famous quote
1: by? I, th- I think it's uh, James Madison. Right. Our Our form of government is meant only for a moral and religious people. Right. Right. That's sort of the the um, the foundation to make the structure work. To, to, right. So right. to make civil society possible, and we need to acknowledge that grounding just as our Declaration of Independence did you know nature and nature's God yeah right and I, I think it sounds like what Lindsay and pluckrose are trying to do is is remove God from the equation
0: right but it retained the freedoms but re- remove God right. from, it. but but without
1: that foundation without that metaphysical foundation the the values themselves lose
0: coherence right so I I've always argued that that uh, re- really we should have Two different definitions we have should have the category of christian and non-christian opposed to each other and we ought to have the category of sacred and secular
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that those two opposed are can be opposed to each other but that they're not exactly the same right so that the secular world is basically that which is not uh geared for uh, corporate worship basically mm-hmm. The secular uh, refers to what we do the other six days of the week kind
1: right. of thing, you know? Kind of like how the, whole, the, the Old Testament makes the distinction between the holy and the common.
0: That's right, right? That's, right. Means that's right. Same nothing notion. nothing inherently unchristian about the right. secular then, you right. see? But what it sounds like to me is the way they're using it, secular, especially when they put ism on the end of it, because yes. it's an ideology now. But, uh, but what they're arguing for is they want to surgically remove God from the equation, but retain these these other things. Secularism relegates these matters to the individual's private conscience and absolves anyone of the requirement to accept or play pay lip service, plays as lip service, to a belief they don't share to avoid social stigma. I can see why they want to say that, because they don't want people saying, if you don't agree with my hard left Critical race theory—you're uh, going to be canceled. You're going to be uh, shunned. You're going to be socially uh, mistreated. Um, but I think, uh, just like our reason, our conscience has to be informed by something deeper than just ourselves. That's right. You know. So I think that's the flaw again—that the—that the Christian definitions of these words have to be embraced and. It seems to me that I think you'll agree with me that ultimately that's the nature of sin in our lives. That we want to define terms for ourselves. We don't want to let the logos be the definition for uh, how we think and act and so on. So that we—it's really the rebellion of the garden, you know, saying, uh, "I want to be my own gods. I'm God. I want to be uh, calling my own shots, kind of thing. You know, I, I can be as God myself." So. That's the real problem. I think as long as we want a, 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 a private conscience, you know, then we've shut ourselves off from the one thing that really could uh, change us. But everybody knows that that means death to self. Mm-hmm. And death to self is the thing that we would reject yeah. at, at all costs. Right. <laughs> if, if I could do anything else, I, I'll do that. Yeah. You know, and that's what Christian conversion is all about. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah there was sort of, if I could sort of summarize my critique of this book, yeah, please. it would be that um, they rightly criticize the modern social justice movement for imminentizing the principle of redemption. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying to trying to accomplish um, or satisfy the human longing for redemption by social activism. Right. What the authors are doing, though, I think, are in effect denying the human longing for redemption. Hmm. You know, they're laying glou- the ground rules for discourse in liberalism, but I I don't think they recognize why the social justice activism has so great an appeal is because it taps into that human longing uh-huh. in a way that their liberal alternative does not. Right. Their alternative is sterile, Good. perhaps. Uh-huh. I mean, it's rational in its uh-huh. own way, uh-huh. but it gives no hope of redemption. Hmm. It, I mean, yes, liberalism has given us material progress, but it doesn't really tap into the deepest human longings. And I think that is an advantage of the social justice activism over what they're, uh, what they're trying to do. sure. However, the problem with the modern social justice movement is it's immanentizing that longing for redemption, mm-hmm. seeking it through transforming social structures, exposing oppression, right. whereas in the Christian tradition, I think we avoid both this Scylla and Charybdis right. By, right. by recognizing the transcendent foundation and, and goal of redemption.
0: Well said. Yeah, I think that's very good indeed. Well, maybe that's a good place to stop. Um, thank you for coming and talking to me about all this. I think it's a really good book, uh, but I agree with you that that their assumptions are somewhat sterile, somewhat sterile. And it's the problem we've had with uh, the Enlightenment all along, right, we, we Christians. We, we, we can agree with the Enlightenment in some ways because they still, for example, believe in a truth to be known. Uh, and that that truth can be, they think that they, uh, truth can be accomplished by uh, a sort of dis, uns- unsacralized ration, reason, uh, rationalism, uh, or science, as they call it. But uh, of course, you know, sci- ciencia just means knowledge. It yes. doesn't mean this. Un, this this divided uh, science that is only rationalist but uh, on the other hand we can actually agree i think with the postmodernists to some degree too be, partly because they they maybe at least in this uh, CRT kind of approach, want uh, some kind of redemption. They recognize things are wrong and that there needs to be something done to reestablish virtue. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think Shelby Steele does a good job of describing in his White Guilt Mm -hmm. book about that the motivation for a lot of white uh, uh, agreement with the CRT and so on is not so much to bring about uh, justice in the world as to regain a sense of lost virtue, mm-hmm. you know, because we feel like we, well, maybe they're right, we owned slaves in the past, you know, we've been oppressive in the past, colonialists and so on. Maybe we've been men that have oppressed women or mistreated them. Uh, so if we're guilty of those things, how do we get it back? Well, then they offer some sort of way of, of getting out of that, only it's not a way out. Right. It's not a way out because they really don't have anything in the way of redemption. But the thing I'm going to say about postmodernism is that they recognize the limitations of the human being and his reasoning to get where he wants to be able to go. Indivi- we, we are uh, influenced by our uh, upbringing and our personalities and our preferences and so on. Uh, so uh, the postmodernist who says, I, I doubt that there is this kind of ability to, to rationally accomplish everything you know, in the laboratory kind of thing. I doubt, I doubt that. It's leading us to become increasingly like robots and you know, disembodied people. So I'm sympathetic with that. But like you say, you don't want either one of them. There is such a thing as a, a third way. Yes. Well, I know we've been reading this. Have you got, uh, I'd like to end with uh, suggestions. Do you have anything uh, you've been reading lately apart from this that you uh, have Um, a suggestion? Can I make two book
1: recommendations? Please, please. Yeah, love it. So um, these two books um, I I first heard about through the the Breakpoint podcast by uh, the Colson Center, John Stone Street. Right, right. Um, So the, the first one is Them Before Us by Katie Faust and Stacey Manning. And it's talking about, it's calling for a recovery of a children's rights movement. Oh. Um, and so it's highlighting the ways that our um, culture today has privileged the wants of adults over the needs of children. Uh-huh. And as a result, children uh-huh. suffer. This kind of goes back to my criticisms of the harm principle within the liberal tradition. Very good. Um, not recognizing the psychological harms caused by sexual autonomy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they, they look at how three, three factors have harmed children within our culture. Divorce, gay marriage, and modern reproductive technologies, mm-hmm. like in vitro fertilization or mm-hmm. sperm donors. You know. okay. and, and, and if you look at the statistics, children suffer profoundly because of those things. Really? Um, and so that's the one, one book I'd recommend. The other one is called Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. Huh. And that's talking about the modern transgender craze, especially among adolescent girls. Oh, yes. Um, there is a phenomenon um, that has a, a name that, that is criticized in social justice activism, but it is a real thing. It's called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Hmm. Um, what we see is that peer groups uh, collectively yes. are experiencing gender dysphoria. Yes. A- and that sort of belies the, the, the biological foundations of transgenderism. Uh-huh. It seems to be a cultural meme, Uh you know, in the Uh sense it's an infectious idea that is, that is being passed socially, um, within peer groups. And that is causing a lot of our, you know, gender confusion among our, our young people. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I've heard that done amongst girls groups. Yes. Especially. Yeah. It used to be the case that transgenderism was more Common among biological males,
0: okay. But now the majority are girls. Are girls wanting to be boys as, as boys? Right, right. Very interesting. Well, thank you for those. I don't know either one of them. I'm glad to know, glad to know them. Um, <clears throat> I want to recommend a book too. Uh, it's a collection of contra- what he calls controversial essays uh, by Thomas Soul called "Barbarians Inside the Gates," and he does a lot of stuff, good stuff here. You know, he's been writing columns for. 50 years right. or more. Uh, he has a part about social uh, things, like we've been talking about, uh, economic things. You know, he's an economist, so that part really is strong. Uh, political thing, le- scene, the legal scene, the racial scene, the educational scene, the, all of these have a set of, oh, I don't know, 15 or so essays uh, on, on each of them. And I recommend them highly. He's just a tremendous writer and thinker. Uh, and I think uh, people need to know him if they don't. So uh, Hoover Press put this out some years ago, Barbarians Inside the Gates. Well, thank you again, Kyle, for being here. It's awfully good to have you. Thanks for having me. And I hope we'll get you back here again soon to talk about other things. If you would like to uh, comment on all that we've said today, I wish that you would write to us at uh, director at centerws.com. We'll be glad to write back consider your questions and uh if we if we could we'll even bring them up in future podcasts so thanks for listening we're uh uh, the center for western studies this is from the center and uh, we'll see you again next time